If you could all grab your seats. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some at the back. Richard, who's at the back, our chief steward today, he'll get you a Bible. If you want one, just put your hand up. We read from the ESV translation. If you're following along on the Version app or something like that. All right, well, today, um, if you're new and joining us, it's great to have you. We love visitors. Um, we've been going through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, for the past 23 months. <laughs> I figured it out that we started at like something like 17th of August, 2020. Uh, now, we have taken some breaks in between, uh, but here we are. We're at the end. Um, you may have been confused because we, the last sermon was just in Matthew 25, but we did Matthew 26 and 27 over the Easter period and the resurrection. And so here we come to the final section, the penultimate, or the ultimate, not the penultimate, the ultimate section, and really the, the summary of the entire book of Matthew. In some ways, you could read Matthew backwards from the last lines and then read the whole way through. Um, and actually, as Providence would have it, my Bible reading plan has taken me through Matthew the past month. Uh, so I've gone through the whole Ma- the book of Matthew leading up to this last sermon. And my last reading was Matthew 27 um, this morning. And now here we are, Matthew 28. It, uh, it was sad this week as I was preparing because, you know, I've got about nine, actually I've got about 14 commentaries on Matthew, um, about nine of them in hard copy. And it was so strange just turning that final page because you know, these have been my mates, you know, because on Thursdays, Fridays, that's when I write my sermon. So I hang out on my own with books and then turning the last page and they, these commentaries, they just end with a whimper. They don't kind of end with his glory. They just end with, and that's the last comment on that verse. And you turn the page and you're like, oh, end notes. Okay. Uh, and so hopefully the sermon doesn't end with just a whimper. It ends with a bang, but uh, you know, it'll, ooh, I shouldn't do that again. If you'd like a title, very creative, The Great Commission. Let's read. I'm going to read, actually. It's not, sorry, Marcus, to do this to you, but seeing as though you sprung hot chips on me, I'm going to spring uh, the resurrection on you. Let's start in Matthew 28 for a bit of context. So Jesus has just been crucified, died, buried. Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, hallelujah, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, 
they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, may you bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The trouble with this text is its familiarity. We know it. You've probably heard it before. You've probably heard many a sermon on it before, potentially, if you've been in the church a long time or if you're new to church, you've probably even read this passage. You probably have heard it explained better than I'm about to explain it. You've probably heard more stirring messages on it. However, this text is incredibly crucial for all of our lives, for every single one of us. The familiarity ought not to breed contempt and it ought not to breed passivity as we read it, thinking, yeah, I already know it. Yeah, it's the Great Commission. It's kind of the purpose of my life. But as we come to this text this morning, I want us to come in, leaning in, recognizing that these are the final words, the ultimate words from the resurrected and risen Lord Jesus Christ. These are the words that he gives to his 11 disciples that spread from that mountain on Galilee all the way across the known world, all the way even here to Australia. And if you're looking for some kind of meaning, true meaning, purpose, significance in your life, if you're kind of going through the grind in the day-to-day, and whether it's parenting or your career or study or whatever's going on, you're just trying to make something of your life and, and you're feeling that sense of like, is this it? <laughs> Isn't there meant to be more to my life than this? Well, this text actually gives you that more. It answers that age-old question, like, what is the purpose or meaning of life? (laughs) Here it is. We don't have to have existential crises as Christians because we're given our purpose. One of the problems with existentialism, if you know that philosophical thought, if you don't know it in theory, you would know it just in practice, is this idea that there is no God, there is no real ultimate meaning. You have to make it yourself. The joy of existentialism is that you're not bound by culture or tradition or formality or your parents or your society. You can be whoever you want to be. The problem with existentialism is the tyranny of choice. You have to figure out who you want to be. Then there's all these opportunities. You could have been this or you could have been that or you should be this or you should be that. You don't receive your purpose. You don't receive your meaning in life. You have to create it, which is exhausting. 
Uh, I find it exhausting. Even though I I know what my purpose is, I, I get lured back in, and maybe you do as well. So here, as we come to the end of Matthew, we get to recenter, be reminded. It's not probably going to be new for most of us, but it's a reminder of this is our purpose as individual Christians and corporately as a church. There's three sections to this passage, and we're going to look at them one after the other. The great claim, the great commission, and the great commitment. So let's jump into verse 16 to 18 and look at point number one, the great claim. Think of if you've been with us since the beginning, and even if you haven't, the whole story of Matthew's gospel, beginning anticlimactically with a genealogy that then leads into the birth narrative and this young pregnant teenage girl, uh, this young guy that finds out his teenage wife that he hasn't slept with is pregnant and he's, what am I going to do? An angel visits him and tells him, actually, you're going to give birth. Your wife's going to give birth to God, uh, which was quite a shock. And, and God will be with you, and he will save his people from their sins. He's the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament right there in your young wife's womb. <laughs> from there, we move rapidly through birth to down to Egypt, back up into Galilee area. Jesus is baptized. God speaks from heaven and declares, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Then he disappears into the desert. He's tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights, but unlike Adam, doesn't give in to that temptation. He rises, goes out, starts preaching like John the Baptist, repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. Thousands and thousands of people start gathering around Jesus. Wherever he goes, he teaches. Wherever he goes, he heals. Wherever he goes, he casts out demons. And then we get to chapter 5 and the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of incredible teaching that we ought to know and memorize. And basically, it's the instruction of our life. From there, we hear more of Jesus' authority and his teaching through chapters 8 through 10. And then he sends the disciples out on their mission And he tells them, you're going to go, but it's not going to go very well. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated. You're going to be delivered over. They go around. They have some success. They have some failure, most likely. Then more teaching, more controversy, more problems, more crowds. Throughout all this time, there's been people from not just Israel, but the various nations and people groups coming in. And we we get these hints that we see in the Great Commission. So you see this one with authority. We see this one for all nations. And then we come right now to the kind of the last eight chapters where Matthew slowed down. Three years in 21 chapters, one week in seven in three chapters. In chapter 21, Jesus descends into Israel, or actually ascends on a donkey and comes into the temple, clears the temple out. They don't like that. Confronts the religious leaders, overthrows them, shows them that they don't have any wisdom and that he's wise, teaches on what will happen at the end of the world in chapters 24 to 25, and then the time has come. What's been planned since Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus takes upon himself the sins of the world. He's crushed, like was promised in Genesis 3, upon that cross. He dies, like we sang about. But in his crushing, he crushes Satan. Because in his death, all of our sins, if you put your faith in Jesus, are are condemned. They're they're taken away. You're acquitted. You are no longer 
you know, nothing can be held against you. Satan can never accuse you of a single sin because any accusation that Satan brings against you, point back to the cross. It's paid for in full. The disciples, though, in the drama, they didn't know that. They were in despair. They were in fear. Three days later, as we read, suddenly Jesus rose from the grave, just like he said he would. Three times he predicted that he would die and rise again in three days. And now we come all the way back to where it all began, in Galilee, on a mountain, which we've seen so many times in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Transfiguration on the Mount, the feeding of the 5,000 on a mountain, a prominent place. And here, instead of the 12, we have the 11, because one of them, Judas, betrayed. We have them falling before Jesus in worship. But notice there in verse 16 and 17, some doubted, uh, which seems strange, doesn't it? Uh, But isn't that just the disciples? Isn't that just us? (laughs) You could have the resurrected Lord Jesus right there in front of you, one that you saw crucified, buried, and dead, and then you can still see him resurrected and have doubt. (laughs) The original language there is probably more hesitation. Perhaps they didn't quite know how to approach him after betraying him and running away. Uh, They doubted, they hesitated. But then look at verse 18. Jesus came, so he approaches them. They're on their knees, they're hesitating, doubting, and he speaks to them. And he makes this great claim. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We know that. We've heard it so many times. But imagine if any human being, normal human being, said that. You know, if you turn the news on and and Putin had said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, I can have Ukraine and Australia and the US. It's mine. Or Joe Biden said it. Or Anthony Albanese said it. It's laughable in a sense. Of course, what all the heavens. You know, we just got the new telescope looking out to the deepest reaches of space And a human being saying, I have authority over that and over the spiritual realm and over earthly kingdom and over your life and over every bank account and every parliamentary decision, I have authority over that. But that's the scope of Jesus' claim here. He's not claiming to just be a religious teacher, a philosopher, an ethicist. No, we can't reduce him to that. He won't let us. All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. That means that the right and the ability to do or say something. (laughs) He has the right and the ability to do or say anything he wants, to anyone he wants, wherever he wants, whenever he wants. I was down in Canberra this week with my family. We visited Parliament House, an old Parliament House, and we have a system where there is legitimate authority. The government has authority in various realms, you know, federal, state, local. And, and in order for them to make laws, they have to go through the, the executive process from, you know, the House of Representatives to the Senate to be signed off by the executive, by the Governor General. They can't just go into Parliament and start discussing things unless the, the, the mace is placed there and the Governor General has called Parliament. They have authority, but it's, it's 
relegated. It's different. It's, it's limited. As a parent, you have authority. If you're a teacher, you've got authority. If you're a police officer, like we have in our church, you have authority. But nothing, nothing compares to this. Unequaled authority over all celestial beings, everyone and everything on earth is under Jesus Christ, whether they recognize it or not. If you're here today, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're trying to figure things out, that's okay. You are warmly welcomed. And Jesus would warmly welcome you like we had a prophetic impression today. But make no mistake, his claim is this, that he does rule and reign over everything and including you. This theme of authority has gone through the whole way of Matthew. We've seen his authoritative teaching, his authority over demons and sickness. He, he can, with a word, make a paralyzed person walk and a blind person see and a, a leprous person clean, a bleeding person stop bleeding, a dead person live. These aren't just stories. The, the, the Gospels isn't an attempt to make like a myth or a legend or a great story. These, these, Matthew is saying, this is what I've seen. This really happened. It has no marks of legend or myth. These miracle stories aren't just like, oh, that's like, this would be cool if we just add, add this to his teaching. This, eyewitness account. He has authority over sin. He can forgives sins, and now this theme of authority is culminated in this statement. This theme that we've seen run all the way through, this idea that the Son of Man, you know, remember we've been in this Daniel passage so many times. Let me read Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Now it's in complete fulfillment. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like one, like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. There's no end to his term. He doesn't have to get reelected. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And we've seen that play out. You know, it's very easy for Jesus to say that. Oh, not very easy. He's just been dead. Okay. But, you know, words, words are cheap, right? I can say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But let's say in 2,000 years' time, whether or not the whole world has churches worshipping me across all lands and over all time. But that's what we see here. Look where we are. We're in Parramatta. We didn't even know Parramatta existed at that time. And we worshipped him with such joy and resolute power this morning. So what's the implications of this great claim? Well, number one, it's a command. What, what Jesus tells us to do next is not optional. He's not just kind of stating like a mere fact, like I have all authority. Cool, like nice, good to hear. But what he's doing is he's setting up the basis for what he's about to do. He's setting up the groundwork for what he's about to commission the disciples and everyone to follow afterwards. So the Great Commission is not optional. The Great Commission is not a suggestion. The Great Commission ought not to be interpreted however we want. The Great Commission is a command from the risen King Jesus who bears all authority over heaven and earth. It is our 
it is our meaning, it's our reason, it's our purpose of existence. Not to be debated, but to be obeyed. But the second implication of Jesus' great claim that he has authority is it also gives us permission. It gives us warrant, you could say it like that. Because think about the nature of the Great Commission. It's invasive, isn't it? It's life-altering and culture-changing. To take the gospel to all nations, languages and people groups will disrupt every single culture, nation, religious system, economic system, philosophical, moral, ethical, spiritual system on earth. The Great Commission is invasive. It calls people to leave whatever allegiance they have and change their entire allegiance to Christ. Which means that, yes, there's some parts of their life which will stay the same because every culture has God's grace in it. But then there's going to be parts of their culture that they're going to have to turn from and turn to Christ. You can't be a Christian and a Hindu, a Christian and a Muslim, a Christian and an atheist. You can't be a Christian and a secularist. You you can be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, or something else. But you can't be both. You can't be half Christian in your marriage or half Christian in your parenting, half Christian in your work. The Great Commission demands all of us. And so what right do we have to go up to someone on the street and demand that every part of their life be changed? Like if someone came up to you and said, I think you should quit your job right now and uh, I want you to move house and I want you to transfer all your bank account to my bank account, it's like, uh, no. Uh, I'd go and get Noah and say, Noah, help me beat this guy up, right? You know, Maybe not, but we actually have permission. We have a warrant. The authoritative King Jesus has given us a warrant to go into other cultures and languages and disrupt them. Now, this doesn't mean this is a free pass for colonialism or imperialism or going into other countries and politically taking over them. That's not what Jesus is talking about. You know, it is grievous what our nation has done to the first peoples of Australia. There's a big difference between politically taking over a culture and spiritually coming in and bringing the gospel. Jesus is giving us warrant for that, to bring people to Jesus, which will change their culture, but through Christ and according to his word and under his authority, not under our ideas of what dress and code and government and law and parliament should look like. Now, think about this. If we, if we just, you know, you turn on the news tomorrow and they research and they found a totally unknown people group. Like, we just didn't realize that there was this part. No one had ever reached them before. And they've got a culture that has existed, maybe, say, for all time. No one else has ever been in there. The greatest sin in our culture would be to go in there as Westerners, right, and to go in and bring our Western values and disrupt their culture. All the news outlets, all the political outlets would be like, just leave them to themselves. This is, let's preserve their culture. Let's allow them to be. Let's let it keep going. But we have warrant as Christians not to go in there and take over politically or economically, philosophically, legally. But we have a warrant. Indeed, we have a commission that we have to go in. And we have to disrupt. We have to be invasive Because they have to know Jesus. Without Jesus, they have no salvation. Without Jesus, they have no liberation from their sin. And so we ought not to be bashful about it. We ought not to be embarrassed about it. 
It's not good the way that the English people took over Australia. But at some point, Australia had to be, people had to come. Because indigenous people, over the 200 nations across our nation, needed to hear the gospel. The Gadigal people, the Darkenjung people, the Darawal people, across all the land, they need the gospel. So someone had to come, but we come under the permission and authority of Jesus Christ to bring the gospel to them, first and foremost. So, it's a command and it's a warrant. All authority belongs to Jesus. That's point number one, the great claim. So that sets it all up. So what are we meant to do? I've hinted at it a lot, and we know this, but let's look at point number two, the great commission. Now, we were down, as I mentioned, in Canberra, and we went to the National Gallery, and uh, the National Gallery is where, you know, it's the, the nation's art museum, I guess you could say. Unfortunately, it was pretty much all under construction, so we saw hardly anything. However, there were quite a few pieces there, and one of the first things you walk into is this beautiful piece of um, artwork commissioned um, by the National Gallery, I believe, uh, and it's a whole indigenous artwork with all these tree stumps beautifully painted and follows a river system and all these different people groups made it, etc. Uh, and it was commissioned by this gallery to be put on display here uh, as a great display of indigenous artwork. Someone had asked someone to make this happen, to represent this thing. Uh, and all throughout the galleries and all throughout different parts of Canberra, there's commissioned pizza, pieces of art where someone has given money, given resource, given authority, and gone to someone and said, go and do this for me, please. And well, here we have Jesus' great commission. Let's read it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's our memory verse for the month. But let's go through it and just make sure we understand each part of it. Let's be reminded. Firstly, go, therefore. So based on his authority, based on the warrant we have to go into all the world, we actually have to go. Um, it's, it's required that the disciples leave Galilee. They weren't meant to make a tent at Galilee, have a great presence in Galilee, have a great convention, build the church of you know, the mountain of the hill of Galilee and just hope that people come. The Great Commission is a commissioning. It's go out. I have a job for you to do. I need you to go. Now, some of us need to stay in local places, but some of us need to go. And whether we stay or go, we've always got to be going. What I mean by that is this. Some of us need to stay here and be on mission here and reach the people and everything here. So we're always going if we're staying. But some of us, and hopefully over the course of the life of this church, we will send out many people to plant new churches, to join church plants overseas, to be missionaries and take the gospel to new places, people, tribes, and nations. So some of us have to stay, uh, go by staying, and some of us need to go by going. The uh, Israel saw themselves as a, a centripetal force. So in the Old Testament, the Israelites were in the, the light of the world, sitting on a hill, and they thought the nations would come to them and become Israelites and be saved. But the church of Jesus Christ is a centrifugal force, starting with Christ and the 11 disciples, and then we spin out 
and go out into the world. And that's why Christianity has spread so far and wide, because of this command to go. So whether we stay or go, what are we meant to do? Well, Jesus gives us a very specific task. Make disciples. Make disciples. Now, in the original, if you're reading in the Greek, uh, which probably only Scott is, uh, it is clear from the grammar that make disciples is, is the main verb. Um, you can tell the, the other verbs go, teaching, baptizing, uh, they're subordinate, they have command nature to them, but the main verb is make disciples. That's the main command. So when you think Great Commission, think make disciples. What does it mean, though? It's a great word. We talk about it, discipleship, discipling, I'm a disciple. Well, simply, it's to make more followers of Jesus. To make disciples is to make new pupils, new students, new apprentices of Jesus Christ. And not just a decision, but a disciple. Someone who says, yes, I repent of my sins and I come to Jesus. And now you are my master. You are my Lord. Whatever you teach, I will follow. Whatever you say, I will do. Whatever you want me to do, I'm in. For all of my life, all the rest of my days. That's what a disciple is. Daniel Doriani in his commentary says this. The essential commission is not tell people about Jesus. It is not preach the gospel. It is not grow your church. It is not make converts. Jesus' commission assumes all these but goes deeper, commanding that we make disciples. To make disciples is to lead new believers to maturity so they understand and follow Jesus and eventually become leaders too. By making disciples, the church stays strong over the generations. Disciples who make it to the end. Remember, Jesus began with 12, but now he's only speaking to 11. Make it to the end, reproducing ourselves, long-term, all-of-life followers. It's not about church growth. It's not about growing the size of our church or any church. It's about more people bending the knee to King Jesus and glorifying Him and loving Him and living His way in His world for His glory. But who? Well, it's a command to make disciples of all nations. In chapter 10, Jesus commissioned the disciples just to go to Israel, but now it's explicit, go to all the world. He doesn't mean nation states like political centers. He means people groups. And we've seen it throughout the gospel, the centurion, the Canaanite woman. The gospel, the good news, the kingdom is not just for Jewish people, praise the Lord, but for everyone. We're the glad recipients of this. Remember, Christianity is not a white religion. It's not a European religion. It's a religion of all peoples everywhere under Christ. And who would have thought it? You know, 11 disciples on a mountain in Galilee. Really? I don't reckon they could have even imagined what this would look like unless they had great eyes of faith. Okay, so that's the main thing. Make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. Well, how does that come about? What does that look like? Well, Jesus fleshes us out with two two more kind of descriptive commands. Firstly, baptizing. So bringing in, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The practice of baptism was relatively new. It was a sign of cleansing from sin. And now Jesus keeps that image that John the Baptist had, but now it's a sign of identification. To be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit is to say, I belong, that's my team. If you transfer, you know, you play for you know, some rubbish team like the Penrith Panthers, and then you transfer to the Melbourne Storm, the glorious Melbourne Storm, you get presented a new jersey, and if you really want to be in the team, you put the jersey on, you say, these are my people, this is my team. That's what baptism represents. It's saying, I identify. I'm no longer this, I'm no longer a pagan, or I'm no longer just merely Jewish. I'm a Christian. I am wearing Jesus' team jersey. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is my tribe. These are my people. No going back. And you wouldn't want to go back to the Panthers anyway. (laughs) It's an identification with who you're aligned with. It's also identification of how you're saved. Remember, baptism represents dying to sin, like Jesus was buried, and rising to new life, like Jesus rose from the dead. And so baptism is a sign that this person who's put their faith in Christ has died to their sin and has new life in Him. And that's why baptism is so important, because it marks people out. If someone starts attending their church, they say, I'm not a Christian. At some point, you've got to get baptized, because it's a sign that you've joined Jesus' team. It's a sign that You have died to your sin and risen to new life in Christ. And it's also communion. To be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is really, it's not just your team, but it's now your family. You're being baptized into friendship with God, and that's the best thing ever. Eternal life is friendship with God. If you think, what's heaven? Well, heaven, it's got a lot of things in it. But the best thing about heaven is God. And the best thing about being in heaven is being with God and having fellowship with Him. And and baptism is a symbol that now you have friendship with God. So we bring people in. Making disciples means bringing them in, into God's family and into the church family. The sign of that, you put the team jersey on and say, I'm a Christian. And you've got to be in a team. There's no solo Christians. So that's what baptism represents. So when Jesus says, go out and make you know, baptize them. He's saying, bring them in. Identify with me and identify with the Father. So once you've brought people in, is that the job done? No. Next part, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Think about those words. It does not mean mere knowledge transfer, does it? Though knowledge is vital. Discipleship means... Knowing, studying, learning, and obeying everything Jesus commanded and taught. You've got to know it to actually do it, but just knowing is not enough. You actually have to put it into practice to be a disciple. You grow from being a baby Christian to a mature man or woman of God. You grow from not knowing, ignorance, to knowing, baptism, to then maturity. And each one of us should be growing bit by bit by bit by bit in knowing the Bible, applying the Bible, obeying the Bible, and, of course, including the Bible, everything Jesus said, taught, or did. So we're in a good position now. We've spent two years looking through at least one of the four books about Jesus' life. And so we've, we've, we've seen it. Now you should be able to 
know a heck of a lot more about what Jesus taught and commanded us to do, and then you can lead others to do it as well. And that's why the mission statement of our church is that we would be a church passionate about knowing the gospel and applying the gospel. Because we're blessed in our doing, not just in our mere hearing. Jesus' teaching is awesome. It's hard. But if everyone lived like it, we would have an incredible world. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and search after righteousness. Blessed are those who are humble or meek. Uh, Imagine if we all live like that. Well, that's what we ought to be like as a church. So putting it all together, Jesus says the Great Commission is this. Go into all the world, make disciples. How do you do it? Well, you bring them in, baptize them, you build them up. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. It's pretty simple. We could get confused as a church. We, you know, and look, I'm a young church planter. I get excited. I, like, I want us to do lots of things and programs and all these things. And sometimes I put too much on. But if you strip it all back, you take everything away, what are we meant to do? Bring people to Jesus and help them to know and live for him for the rest of their lives. That's what we're here. That's why we exist. That's why we planted the church. I want you to just spend a moment now. Just reflect, who made you a disciple? Obviously God, but humanly speaking, someone did this to you, didn't they? Someone discipled you. Someone brought you to Christ. Someone baptized you. Someone has taught you to obey everything that Jesus has taught. For me, probably the most humanly influential person was my youth leader, Craig Stalder, Gaimi Anglican Church. From year 7 to year 12, every Friday, plus many other times during the week, then every Saturday and every Sunday, we hung out. He brought me to Christ. He taught me what it means to love God, to live for God with my money, with my time, my sexuality, um, with everything. Um, so I was tearing up this week thinking about that. It's good not to take it for granted and be reminded someone discipled you. Someone made you a disciple. And thank God for them. Spend some time this week thanking God for whoever it was that principally obeyed this command and led you to Christ. And so I think if you could summarize it, I think Jesus would say, other than his already great summary, and I can't improve upon the Great Commission, but basically the point of it is that every one of us would be a disciple-making disciple. That's what the Great Commission is, that every single one of us, not just the pastors, the program leaders, the life group, but every one of us, whether you're a member of our church or not, every one of us would be a disciple making disciple, no days off. This isn't just for leaders. This is for each and every single Christian. And remember, making disciples is the one unique thing we can do as Christians. Muslims have great charities. Hindus, Buddhists, secular atheists, all different religions and tribes have charities and and social programs and law programs and great ways of living as it accords with God's will and word. But the only people on earth that will take people from eternal damnation and judgment and bring them to Christ so that they can be saved are Christians. So the one chief and unique thing we can do as a local church is make disciples. The greatest thing we could ever do for someone is to help them become a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's good to feed people. It's good to clothe people. It's good to help people. 
in every way. And we should love God, love neighbor, but not without neglecting the most important thing to make disciples. Now, it sounds all quite impossible and exhausting. All of your life, all of Jesus' commands, all the nations. Well, Jesus leaves us with one final sentence, the final sentence of Matthew's gospel. Point number three, after the great claim, the great commission, now the great commandment, uh, commitment, sorry, the great commitment. Look at the last, it was going good. I don't know what I did. It's a sign I should wrap up. (laughs) Jesus says this, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Remember where Matthew's gospel began after the genealogy? The angel appeared to Joseph, said, you'll give birth to God. (laughs) His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Now Jesus has resurrected. He's going to ascend into heaven after 40 days. He gives this commission, go into all the world. It sounds impossible. It sounds exhausting. It sounds demanding. And then he's going to leave the 11 disciples to go and do it on their own. No, and he doesn't leave us either. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's a great commitment he makes to us. To go means leaving. To make disciples means to call people to leave their life and change everything. Of all nations means crossing all the difficult language, cultural, ethical, moral, spiritual boundaries. Baptizing means people can't just become Christians in private and live their own Christian life. It's public. Teaching them to obey doesn't just mean we can bring people in, get a snap decision, emotional, and then leave them to it. Our job's done. No, we've got to take people from baby Christian to mature Christian, from the beginning to the end of their life. It's all so difficult. But these things, they're not just difficult, right? They're impossible. The Great Commission is not just difficult. It's impossible. Unless Jesus is with us, empowering us, authorizing us. Every step of the way. We can't make anyone a disciple. I can't bring anyone from spiritual death to spiritual life. I can't help anyone begin their Christian life and make it to the end. I can't transverse cultural barriers. Look, I'm terrible culturally. You know when you hang out with me. I make so many bad jokes and I get it wrong all the time. We can't do it. None of us can. It's impossible. Yet, Jesus is with us. If it feels demanding or exhausting, all the commands to make disciples, just remember this. Jesus has committed, and these aren't just like sentimental words that you put on a a Hallmark card that you buy at the news agency to give. These are the authoritative words of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's not just words for the disciples, it's for us. He's with us here in Parramatta and all the faithful churches around the world. He's with us to the end of the age, no days off. 
You're not alone as you go out to make disciples. When you're at work and you're facing all the pressures and all the moral dilemmas and all the different ideas and it's, it's tricky and it's awkward and, and you want your friends and co-workers to become Christians but you're not sure how to do it or when to say, what to say, uh, when to tread on toes, when not to tread on toes, when to speak up, when to be quiet. You're not, you don't really even want to disrupt their life because you know becoming a Christian is going to be awkward and then, then if they become a Christian, then they're going to be Christians together in the workplace and you're not even sure you like them but you know, you're not alone behold I'm with you when you're trying to make disciples at home and you've got differences of belief in your own household whether it's your spouse or your kids or your housemates and you're trying to figure out how do I make disciples here how am I meant to help these people know Jesus and love Jesus you feel desperate you feel pathetic you feel like a failure right at least I do you are not alone Behold, I am with you. And as a church, it can feel so small and so, you know, like two steps forward, five steps back, whatever we do works and then some things don't work and we're trying to make disciples as a church. And Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see, this commission, it's Jesus' commission, not ours. We didn't make it up. And making disciples, it's, it's not like we're converting people to our tribe or our team or like, you know, trying to grow our little institution. Disciples are, are sheep. There's lost sheep. Sheep that Jesus has predetermined to be brought into eternal life. Sheep that he shared his blood for. Sheep that he died to rescue. And he will not abandon them. He will not abandon those he died for because he's the good shepherd. He will always seek out his lost sheep until every single last one is found and kept safe to the end. And he will do that through us and through the millions of uses around the world. He said to Peter, you are the rock and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. He's made a great commitment to us. So we can go out with the great commission and seek to make disciples and be faithful to it, knowing that we don't do it alone. We don't do it in our power. We don't do it for our glory. We do it with him and for him. So that every one of us, this my hope, that would be a disciple-making disciple. So as you think about the meaning or significance or purpose of your life, where does this factor? It's easy to lose track. It's easy to be caught up. It's easy even to do good things. As a church, we do lots of good things, but never should the good things we do trump the most important thing. We're here to make disciples of Jesus and help mature disciples to the end. Do you see yourself as a disciple maker or do you think that's up to the the really spiritual people the more godly people no it's each one of us this is our commission you ought to ask yourself this week how can i help the people around me to know and follow jesus this is my mission this is why i'm here this is why i'm still breathing you're breathing right now as a christian because you've got to do this. And once you stop breathing, that's when your Great Commission ends. 
But while you're breathing, go and make disciples. Do it with him. So think, who, who am I making into a disciple? Who am I actively pursuing to bring them from whatever way they're living into being a disciple so that they can know Jesus? And not just that, who are you helping to mature as a disciple? Our job is not just bringing in, it's building up. Whether your spouse, your kids, your family, your life group, your growth group, who are you currently discipling? Bringing in, building up. And then another way you can think about this is, who's currently discipling you? I need help obeying every one of the last, last one of Jesus' commands. And you probably do too. Craig Stalder was my disciple when I was young. I've got many people discipling me now. Who's discipling you? Who's helping you to follow Jesus to the end? Well, as we turn the final pages on Matthew and we, we finish our 23-month-long series, we end with this incredible claim. Jesus has all authority. We've got this great commission to make disciples of all nations and we have the great commitment. He's always with us. And we summarize Matthew's gospel with those words behind us. Jesus is king. Therefore, he can make this commission. He can make this claim and he can make this commitment. All authority is his. All allegiance is owed to him. All nations should bow their knee to him. And it's all for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much that you've given us your word and that we are not left ignorant. We thank you that you sent someone to make disciples of us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that's not yet a disciple of your son, Jesus Christ, that they will enter through the narrow gate today and become a disciple and enter into life, true life. And that then they would become a disciple maker themselves and bring many others to the feast and to the party. Lord, would you bless our efforts as a church, the everyday, ordinary, slow slog, of disciple making, bringing people in, building them up. And we do pray and ask that you would visit and bring revival and bring rapid change and, and hundreds, if not thousands of people to know you. We long for that, but we know that in your ordinary work, Lord, it seems to be small and gradual, bit by bit. So give us joy, give us patience for the journey and strengthen us, Emmanuel. Be with us for the entire all for you, our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and worship you. Amen.